Bible church. again in the book of Ephesians, continuing our study in the book of Ephesians, and we find ourselves specifically this morning in the passage of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Let me read that entire sermon so that we can set the context of the sermon this morning. Paul writes, therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles of the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now Christ in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both to one, in one body to God through the cross, 
Quiet having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So that so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also being built together into a you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the title of a recent article in Christianity Today reads, Carving Out a Niche for Micro-Congregations. A new wave of designer ministries isn't about attracting people to big church. That's the subtitle. The lead-in paragraph states this. On any given Sunday at 7.30 a.m., a visitor to the Shalites Boxing and fitness center may find two dozen or so men and women hitting punching bags, cranking out push-ups, and congratulating one another after a particularly tough bench press. No, it's not CrossFit. It's Sunday morning worship at Warrior Church. The article continues to explain how Warrior Church functions. Just listen. Before the workout starts, John Steele, the founder of Warrior Church, kicks off the hour with a 15-minute prayer and discussion from a lectionary. So basically, I'm, I'm speaking now, so basically you can go to this church and you can pray and listen to a discussion for 15 minutes, this brief discussion, then you can pump some iron before going to an early lunch so that you can be back home for the early, the early morning or the early, that is, the early slate of NFL football games. Sounds reasonable, right? The story continues. Founded in 2017, Warrior Church is one of four, soon to be six, communities aimed at military veterans and others experiencing trauma that help compose the network of St. Isidore Episcopal Church in and around Spring, Texas. Now, let me just say, I applaud their desire to reach groups who are hard to reach and who need Christ, but we must ask ourselves if this is what Christ meant when he said, I will build my church. So what the article goes on to describe Warrior Church. It says this, the liturgy at, of St. Isidore's Warrior Church follows the Book of Common Prayer, but beyond that, differs radically from a traditional Episcopal service. It involves circuit training, weightlifting, and yoga exercises that help people with Trauma process the, the spiritual message through physical activity. According to the author, other denominations have similar niche communities. These communities go by different names. Fresh expressions, missional communities, micro-churches, but they bear many similarities. You might think of them, this is the article speaking, you might think of them as parallel streams flowing in the same direction. Some of these communities consider themselves local churches reaching very specific populations, while others consider themselves as expressions of the church. Not mature churches, yet still manifestations of the universal church. Now, 
the Southern Baptists have picked up on this model for church planting. Keith Ezel, the president of the North American Mission Board, says that the traditional Southern Baptist model for church planting does not work, get this, does not work in all contexts. So they have decided not to limit their planters to just one model. This is what it says about this situation in the article again. Now combined with the recently rebranded SEND network, church planters can target specific college campuses or a certain ethnic group. This is what Ezel says. In the past, the Southern Baptist Convention has made the lane too narrow. They, he says this, that we want flexibility. Now, it seems that anything other than the traditional model goes, right? Think about that. That when you are celebrating flexibility, that anything other than what's traditional is what we should do. When I first arrived in Gainesville three years ago, I met with a couple of, I hope, well-meaning Southern Baptist church leaders who told me that Grace Bible Church would not work unless we targeted a certain group. You know, like students or middle-aged professionals or athletes or some target group that we had that we could go into that community and target. They said this church, they said Grace Bible Church could not be established by using the quote-unquote traditional model. Whatever that means. I'm not sure what it means. They told me that my preaching wasn't good enough to attract people. I kind of agree with them on that, because it's not about my preaching, right? It's about doing church the way God intends for us to do church. Since then, I've had one other man who specifically told me this church will never grow if we keep doing what we're doing. We're too narrow. Too narrow. Now, let me back up and give you a description of St. Isidore, Episcopal Church, which which is planting the warrior church. I think this is where I want to tie into our sermon this morning. The St. Isidore Network also includes, this is the article again, along with a few house churches, Taco Church, where men gather for prayer at Taco Bell, and Coloring Church, dedicated to dialogue and artistic expression. But if you're hoping to visit St. Isidore's main building, to attend their gathered Sunday service, you will be disappointed. These gatherings, gatherings aren't just small group and outreach programs, they are the church's primary menus. Let that hang over you for a second. According to its website, St. Isidore then is a church without walls. Church without walls. I think it's crucial for us to consider what St. Isidore means by a church without walls. You know, this phrase, this phrase seems
that. I wanted to pick up where I left off that these small groups and outreach are not, they, they're not, they're, they're, they are the, the church's primary, St. Isidore's primary According to his website, St. Isidore then is a church without walls. Now, I think it's critical for us to, to consider what St. Isidore means by a church without walls. The phrase almost seems straight out of Ephesians 2, right? right? You know, we're supposed to be tearing down those walls. But the question is, what, is it, what does St. Isidore mean by that? There's a quote in the, the movie The Prince's Pride where it, the, the, man, so the, the actor says, you keep using that word, I don't think you know what that word, what it means when you, what, I don't think it means what you think it means. I'll give you out of They seem to think, that, that, that is, that they seem to think that this word means, or this phrase means, the tearing down walls, that there shouldn't be any boundaries to church. In other words, they believe church shouldn't be defined by a weekly gathering. And as such, they think that the weekly gathering doesn't define a church. Therefore, the leaders of St. Isidore think that they are tearing down walls which can, which can find by expressing itself in multiple ways amongst multiple groups of people who have common interests, concerns, and problems. But it seems to me that, this is the conclusion, it seems to me that they're tearing down the walls we need by strengthening and building the walls we don't need. Let me make sure we understand that. They're tearing down the walls that... that that build uh, boundaries uh, on the outside, to the outside. The church needs strong walls which protect us from doctrinal error. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.15 that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. So we need walls that are going to define who is with us and who is not. We need walls who clear, that clearly define what we need or what we believe. And we also need walls which force us to come together and work through our differences as we fight for biblical unity and peace with one another. But we certainly need to reach groups in our community, but we need to make sure that we're not creating a, bound, a boundary, boundaryless situation. We need to reach people with varying interests, but we need to do so by giving them a common interest which overrides every worldly interest. In other words, we need to give it to Christ. In Christ, enemies are unified in true friendship. In Christ, those who are at war with one another can have true peace. That's Paul's main point in Ephesians 2, 14 and 15. In these verses, what we're going to find is, is that Paul gives us five explanations why the church can have true unity and peace with one another. First, we're going to see that Christ himself is our peace, and that's, verses, that's verse 14. Now, let me give you a brief review from last week's sermon. In these verses, in this passage, Paul is primarily talking about the relationship between Jew and Gentile in the church. As you may recall, this controversy threatened to destroy the early church. I would say, biblically, from in the New Testament, that this, this was the, the church's greatest difficulty. As you may know, the church, the first church council in Acts 15 mainly dealt with Jew and Gentile relationships and whether or not Gentiles must be circumcised if they were to become a Christian. As we learned, there was a, a, a extreme amount of hate between these groups. So, 
So the question then became, how could they dwell together? How could Jew and Gentile dwell together in the church with so much enmity between them? But God didn't intend it to be this way, right? He set apart the Jewish people so that they could reflect the glory of Him, His glory, to the rest of the world and to the nations. Instead of becoming a beacon of hope to the rest of the world, they turned inward and became prideful and arrogant. You see, God had not called out Israel to be an enemy in of itself. They weren't to be, as, as some put it, they weren't to be a bucket that simply held the truth, but a channel which the truth of God flowed through to the Gentiles, to the nations. You see, they forgot the message of Isaiah 57, 19. One of the great verses of the book of, of, the book of Isaiah, and even the Bible, it says, peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near. See, God wanted Israel to be used to take the gospel to the nations, the good news uh, that he had created the world and he was going to save and redeem the world to himself. This message of peace was intended for those who were far off and those who were near. Unfortunately, the Jews believed that the Gentile had, Gentiles had to become one of them to be saved. Therefore, the Gentile was separated from the hope of the Messiah and excluded from the covenant promise, promises which were to be fulfilled in him. Said another way, and said in Paul's words, they were without hope. And they were without God in this world. But Jesus, the Messiah, changed all that. Through the blood of Christ, those who were far away, the Gentiles, were brought near. In Christ, they could become partakers of the covenant promise. They could come to know the one true God through the good news of the gospel. And Paul wanted the church at Ephesus to recollect their previous path, to understand that outside of what Christ had done, they were lost and to recognize their present position because of the work of Christ, because of the blood of Christ they've been brought near. Now, I would argue that this ties into Paul's overarching theme of the importance of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. In other words, Paul wanted to see the gospel, he wanted to see it preached to every tribe, tongue, and nation so that God would get all the glory. Paul understood that the church of Eph at Ephesus had great strategic importance in guarding and spreading this message. And let me give you a connection. It's no mistake that two different times, in 1 Timothy 6.20 and in 2 Timothy 1.14, Paul told Timothy, the pastor at Ephesus, to guard the treasure, to guard the treasure, the gospel which had been entrusted to him. Think about it. Now I want you to, I want to remind you that last week we learned that the nations were born at the Tower of Babel. When God confused man's language and scattered him over the face of the earth, he did so instead of so that instead of working together for evil, they would work against one another. So what man meant for evil, right? Man meant this for evil. Man meant to come together in, in an evil unity. But God meant it for good. That's, that's using the words of Genesis 520. You see, God punished man for his disobedience, yet the nations were born, which will ultimately give God all the glory. So it, the question then becomes, in their state of confused language, where was the Messiah come from? And what was God's plan of redemption? How could mankind ever come back together? You see, at that point in time, it seemed, it seemed impossible. In, but in Jesus' words, 
from Mark 10, 27, with people, it is impossible. But not with God, for all things are possible with God. In a sense, then, the church is a reverse of the Tower of Babel. Turn to Acts chapter 1, I'm going to show you. In Acts 1.8, Jesus promised the disciples he would send the Holy Spirit upon them and that they would be his witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. As such, the gospel would go out from Jerusalem to all the nations and the power of the Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, we see the beginning of the fulfillment of this promise at the day of Pentecost. And what I want to do is read this account to you, and I want you to see this in light of the church being a reverse of the Tower of Babel. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise, like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them as tongues, and there appeared... They appeared to him them as tongues of as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each of them. Look at verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. We stop there and just say these tongues that we're speaking of here, or that, that Luke is writing of, are earthly languages. They're nothing more or nothing less than that. Look at verse 5, just if you, if you don't believe what I'm saying. Listen to verse 5. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. Clearly we're talking about earthly languages. Power battle, right? those came from. I hope as we're going through this, you look at speaking in tongues in a different way. It's not an indistinct language, but a distinct language, which can be used to preach the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of the Messiah. That's the connection to the Tower of Babel. Friends, I submit to you, I argue that this is a reversal of Babel. Look at verse 7. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all those these who are why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Galileans. And how is it that we hear each of them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians, and Medes, and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cap Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phicria, Phrygia, that is, Amphilia. Egypt and districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. It says this, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? Beloved, it means that Christ will build his church, made up of all of these he will build his church made up of all of these people. Brothers and sisters, we should continue. We should all continue in amazement at this. Christ is building his church with all the nations. 
The question then is how will Christ bring all these groups together to form the church? How will all these groups live in unity and peace with one another when there has been so much hate and enmity between them? How can these diverse groups ever be built into one church, the body of Christ? Let's go back to Ephesians 2.14 for the answer. Church can be built with both Jew and Gentile, with all these various groups of people, because Christ Himself is our peace. Look at the text. Paul says, We have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace. Paul is emphatic here that it's Christ Himself who is our peace. Paul's grammar and how he writes this emphasizes this. He has said, over and over and over that we are in Christ. He said it in verse, chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 1, verse 4, chapter 1, verse 6, 7, 10, 13, chapter 2, verse 5, chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, chapter 2, verse 10 and 13. You can go back and look at every one of those verses and you will see Paul emphasizing that we are now in Christ. As Christians, you are fully identified in Christ. You have been bought with a price. Your tonal title of ownership has been transferred to Him. Said another way, you are immersed in Christ. And as such, you join with Paul saying, as he says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Beloved, if you are a Christian, if you have turned to the Lord Jesus Christ in saving faith, you are in Christ, and you have, therefore, you have peace with God and men because of Him. Paul exclaims in, in Romans 5 1, he says, this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, what does that mean? Paul saying, therefore I have been saved. Having been saved, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that back in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that Christ, that Christ is our peace. You see, mankind is at war with God and with, with one another. God is at war with wicked mankind. The, the psalmist writes in Psalm 7, Psalm 7, verse 11. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. Friends, I know that's not a normal Sunday school verse. But it's actually Yet the prophets saw a great day of salvation when God would save his people and he would bring them shalom, peace. He would rule them by the anointed king, the Messiah. This promise shalom is not just a mere cessation of hostilities, but it's much more. He's taken those who are at war and he has put them in a condition in which we can enjoy them forever in which we can have a complete and permanent joy, a complete and permanent well-being in Christ. Romans 
Malachi 1 tells us that because we are justified, we can enjoy this shalom. We can enjoy this shalom. Paul is saying that Christ is our shalom. In the simple yet profound words of R.C. Sproul, he says this, Christ is our peace for us, so for us there is no more war with God. And I would add there is no more war between us, though we do still war. And there is sin to make flesh. You still fight that flesh. You still war because of that. But in Christ, We've seen Paul's first explanation why the church can have true unity and peace with one another. Because Christ is our peace. Let's look at the second explanation. Christ has deconstructed our dividing walls. I have to stay with the C there, so I have to be a little bit <coughs> negative. Look at the text. The Bible. Verse 14. We made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Now, at this point, we should make sure that we recognize that Paul is talking about Jews and Gentiles. He has made the two groups into one. At this juncture, he doesn't tell how he's accomplished this, only that we are no longer separate entities, that we have been unified, or united, that is, into one body. We are in Christ. Again, that terminology of being in Christ that Paul has reminded us over and over of. So we are then united together in Christ. If you and I both are in Christ, then that means that we are united together in Christ. In his sermon on this passage, John MacArthur relates the story of a missionary who told a story about officiating a communion service in a remote area of Africa. As he sat at the communion table, to his right was a man known in his native language as Manly Heart. He was the tribal chief of the Ngoni. There were many Ngoni in the congregation, and the old chief told him, this man, this missionary, that he could remember the days before they heard of Christ. The young warriors of the Ngoni went out and they bloodied their spears with the blood of the neighboring tribes, the Sangha and the Tumbuka. They even raped and kidnapped their women. But now, the chief said, it's all different. It's all different. The missionary himself could attest to this because sitting at his left were elders from the churches of, from among the Sangha and the Tamuka. All three tribes had represent, were represented at the community. Those tribes had once thirsted for each other's blood. Now they were united. They were graphically drawn near to one another by the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. Beloved, they were united in Christ. These three groups were made as one. These three groups were made to love one another. They no longer had these dividing walls between them. Back in season two, this was the case for all these Gentiles. What is the, we have to answer the question, what is this dividing wall? Many people believe that, that Paul is referring to the dividing wall or wall of separation in the temple. This wall was, a, was partitioned off the court of the Gentiles from areas open to the Jews only. Now, we must remember, we recall in history, that the temple and this wall was not destroyed until AD 70, which would have been after Paul's writing here. 
So when so the Romans actually destroyed the temple under Nero. So he, he isn't using he isn't using the, that wall as an example of what God had already torn down. Though God would destroy that wall by the hand of Nero. But I believe then that he's metaphorically metaphorically referring to this wall which represented the great separation between Jew and Gentile. This wall metaphorically meta, metaphorically represented the separation. And according to Paul, Christ has destroyed this wall of separation between his people. Now it's funny, your translations say that Christ has broken down this wall. I don't think this translation does justice to Paul's point. Christ has violently destroyed the dividing wall between us. If you are in Christ and you are no longer separated from your brothers and sisters in Christ because the walls of division have been torn down, they have been reduced to rubble, they don't exist anymore, they have been completely deconstructed. Well, but I don't, it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your culture, what culture that you're from. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter. In none of those fleshly distinctions, matter. Those, the walls between us have been torn down by Christ. We have been united together in Christ. In Christ. We see the first two explanations of why the church can have true unity and peace with one another. Let's look at this third. Christ has canceled, canceled our enmity. Look at verse 15, the first part of the verse 15. It says, By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Now, this passage, this, this specifically this verse, is very difficult to understand and very, very difficult to translate. Very difficult to completely understand what Paul is saying. So what I want to do is I want to read to you what I believe is the best translation of verses 14 and 15. And I believe this will help you see what Paul is, is trying to say. He says this, starting in verse 14. I'm just going to read these two verses. For he himself is our peace, the one who made the two one, and destroyed the dividing wall of the division, he nullified the enmity in his flesh. That is, the law of the commands and ordinances. So that in himself he might create the two into one new man, making peace. But the idea here is that this enmity, this, this enmity that he has destroyed or nullified, is, I want to make sure I, I emphasize nullify. This enmity nullified is the law of the commands and ordinances. Now, let's first look at the verb I translated, he nullified. The NASB translates this word, he abolished. The, the verb means to cause something to come to an end. But it also has the idea of causing something to lose its power or effectiveness. So he nullified, he brought to an end the enmity. This word has the idea of hostility or hatred. He nullified the hostility or hatred in his flesh. Paul goes on to tell us exactly what the source of this enmity is. 
It is the law of the commands and ordinances. Put very simply, Paul is referring to, I believe, the, he's referring, I would argue that he's referring to the Jewish ceremonial law. The ceremonial feast, fasting, dressing, cooking, and even circumcision. When Christ died on the cross, he nullified, he brought to an end all of that. Now I want to be very careful. We have to be very careful. I, I was uh, listening to a lecture on this and the guy, uh, the professor said, I, I, want, I feel like I'm, I'm uh, what do you say, I feel like I'm taking apart a nuclear bomb on a flying asteroid. Because we, we want to be very careful to make sure we all understand what, what's going on here. See, he's not talking about the moral law. He's not talking about God's moral law, because God has a moral law, and it never changes. God's moral law is rooted in his character, and it is created, built into the fabric of his creation. God's moral law is written on the heart of man. He, God condensed his moral law to the ten words, or the ten commandments that we see in Exodus 20. These Ten Commandments can be further summarized by the two great commandments given by Jesus. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. You see, these commandments, the Ten Commandments, are fixed and will never pass away. What was abolished at the cross was the ceremonial, the, the ritual, the traditional. You see, those laws are what formed the barrier between you and Gentiles. Jew and Gentile couldn't eat together because they prepared, prepared food differently. The Jews couldn't even eat the same foods as the Gentiles, right? If you look through those, those, those uh, laws. They, the Jews actually lived a completely different system, or completely different life than the Gentiles. But this system, Judaism, was uh, abolished when Christ died on the cross. That's what Paul means by the phrase, he nullified the enmity in his flesh. In other words, at the cross. In Matthew 27, you can turn to the Bible. It says, in verse 50, you see that Christ died on the cross. He, Cried out again to a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And then we see a few things that are happening. The curtain in the temple was torn in two, the earth shook, the rocks split, tombs were opened, and saints were raised. But in verse 54, I want you to look closely here. Verse 54 says, Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Therefore, what we see then is at the cross, we see a Gentile centurion exclaiming that Jesus was or is the Son of God. What we have to understand is, is that amazingly, it is a Gentile who made this declaration. Now, it's even more amazing when we consider that, that this would have been blasphemy, would have been considered blasphemy against Caesar, Caesar, because Caesar was known as the Son of God. He's saying, no, Caesar's not the Son of God. This is the Son of God. 
this event signaled the beginning of the inclusion of Gentiles into Messiah Jesus. The barriers had been destroyed. They had been abolished. They had been torn down. Now, let me give you one more example of Gentile inclusion in the gospel by, the nullif- by nullifying the effects of the law. Turn to Acts 10 quickly. And let me run you quickly through the story. In verse 1, there was a man named Cornelius, who was a Gentile, who feared God. In verse 5, he was told in a vision to send for Peter. And on the next day, in verse 9, Peter was praying. He was given a vision of all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth. And a voice came to him to get up and fill and eat. But Peter refused this vision three times, saying that he had never eaten anything unholy or unclean. But the voice said... The boy said, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. And according to verse 16, that would be chapter 10, verse 16, this happened three different times. Now about that time, according to the text, Cornelius' men appeared at the gate asking for Peter. And the Spirit said to him, behold, there are three men who are looking for you. But get up and go downstairs and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. And they stayed with Peter, and they traveled back to Cornelius in Caesarea. Now, we, we may miss how shocking this is. You see, this is racism on steroids, if you will. For the Jew, contact with a Gentile was unclean. It would have meant defilement. Yet Peter had them stay with him. And then Peter traveled back to Caesarea with them. And in verse 28, he said to them, For you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to even visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Absolutely shocking. And Cornelius told the story of his vision and that he was commanded by the Lord to send for Peter. So we see here the Lord superintending this process of the Jew and Gentile coming together. Verse 34. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Later in verse 45, it says, All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on who? On the Gentiles also. You see, Christ has, we see Christ has nullified that enmity. He has abolished it in his flesh. The, those things that have, that have created separation, he's canceled them out. Therefore, in Christ, we can have true unity and peace for him. Let's quickly look at this fourth explanation. God has created us a new man. Because look at the text back in Ephesians. He says, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man. This is where the rubber meets the road in this text. In NAS says that Christ has in himself made the two into one. But the ESV, I think, is the best translation here. It uses the word create. 
I believe that's the correct translation because I, I believe Paul wants his readers to think of creation. He is now made the two into one, thus creating a new man. It's a third way, or not third way, but it's, it's a third. We have Jew, Gentile, now we have the new man. I believe this points to the new creation, the new heaven, and the new earth. When people experience church, when they come here at GBC, they should be experiencing a taste of the new creation because you are all new creation. So ludicrous for us to divide over fleshly things such as appearance and culture because we're all one new man together in Christ. This goes back to my lead-in with the story of of this church, St. Isidore. Why do we divide ourselves along worldly and fleshly lines? Why do we divide ourselves based on fleshly appearance and values? It makes no sense. It makes no sense. This word translated new refers to something not previously present or unknown. This is a completely new man distinct from Jew and Gentile. This new man is distinctly in Christ and distinctly Christian. Paul states in Galatians 6.15, For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. But a new creation. In 2 Corinthians 5.17 it says, Therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away, the old new things have come. James reminded his readers in James 1.18, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. In other words, we are the down payment for the new creation to come. And that's why I say that when people come into this church, when people come to Grace Bible Church, they should see, they should sense something different. Something completely different. Something new. They should see that the, the, the enmity has been, been abolished that the walls have been torn down and that we're together in Christ. Isaiah 65, For behold, I created new heavens and new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Revelation 21.1, That I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any seed. Beloved, beloved, we are the first fruits of that new creation. Come full circle then to the end. See, we've been given the first four explanations of why the church can have true unity and peace within the earth. Because Christ Himself is our peace. Because Christ has deconstructed our dividing wall. Because Christ has canceled our enmity. Because Christ has created us as new man. And lastly, we come full circle and say, we come full circle and say, in doing all these things, Christ has crafted, has crafted our people. The last part of the verse. Simply says, that's established peace. Brethren, this is not a distinctly Christmas message. But I think we can see the parallels to the story of Christmas. We read the account this morning of the birth of Messiah, of the aftermath of the birth of Messiah, the one who would bring us peace. The hope of all humanity was found in that babe in the manger. Let's not forget that that child was visited by who? By Jewish 
shepherd, but by who else? Gentile, my Magi. You may recall that when Simeon blessed the child in the temple in Luke 2.32, he explained that he was a light of revelation to the and the glory of the people with You see, this baby in the manger was born to die. And in him we have the hope of forgiveness of our sins. In him we find the hope of peace with God and man. Hope of peace with one another. In Luke 2 11, for today, in the city of David, there, was, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger, and suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among men with whom he is well pleased. The Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined man. Hope for pardon. Hope for peace with God. Hope of glory. Because at the Father's will, Jesus became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later he might hang on the cross. But as you celebrate, we celebrate the birth of the Messiah in these next few weeks, I hope you'll consider that Jesus, all that Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man, has accomplished in becoming perfect humanity. I hope you will consider that the hope of the gospel that perfect God became perfect man and became the perfect sacrifice for our sin. So that we might have peace. Let me end with the words of Isaiah the prophet. For a child will be born to us, the Son of man. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father.
flesh, see each other according to our backgrounds. Yet, Lord, we are want to, we desire to fight these tendencies, to lay down the, the weapons of war, or at least use them for that purpose. So that we might protect, so that we might be like Timothy. 